We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Away we go, episode 149 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, September 21st, 2021, the day on which the Washington football team begins practicing in preparation for quite the challenge this Sunday afternoon at the Buffalo Bills at 1. Uh, you know, Washington had a nice little break off the 30-29 win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field last Thursday night, but there can be no resting on your laurels, or as Keyshawn Johnson once said, resting on your morals. Uh, Neither means of resting is good. We never rest on this podcast. We are always hard at work for you, the DC Sports Warrior. We follow sports so you don't have to. That's one of my mantras for this podcast. Hello and welcome to a Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. No other DC Sports podcast or show Uh, like this one. New episode each weekday, Monday through Friday. Each episode out by 5 a.m. Unless we have something like that game this past Thursday night. I wasn't able to publish the episode for this past Friday, episode 147, until after 5 a.m. on Friday. My apologies for that, but getting out a proper show that went in-depth as it needed to on a glorious game that ended up ending right around midnight, uh, that required some time. So I thought better to sacrifice the 5 a.m. thing for one day than to sacrifice the quality 
of the program, or the program, as some people like to say. But barring the unusual, each episode is out by 5 a.m. and many times out earlier than 5 a.m. Spread the word. If you know of people frustrated with DC Sports Talk Radio, as I know many are, if you know of people looking for more or better content on the Washington football team, let those people know about the Al Galdi podcast. Spread the word. Testify, if you will. Oh, my brother, testify. Yes, thank you, Brother Devon. Testify. Well, I have a very special guest for you on this show regarding the Washington football team. He will testify. Uh, Washington football team analyst Mark Bullock. Uh, He'll be with me next segment. Uh, Mark Bullock is terrific when it comes to doing film breakdowns of the Washington football team. Uh, Mark's really good at explaining these film breakdowns. Uh, Now that my good pal Chris Cooley isn't doing film breakdowns like he used to, uh, Mark Bullock may well be the best when it comes to doing film breakdowns of the Washington football team. And so you're going to hear Mark Bullock tell us what the tape has revealed over Washington's first two games regarding Taylor Heineke, Terry McLaurin, Washington's defense as a whole, uh, Chase Young, William Jackson III, Landon Collins, and more. You do not want to miss Mark. And again, he's coming up next segment. Now, I mentioned Taylor Heineke. Also on the show, I have for you two stunning stats for Heineke of what he has done so far as a Washington quarterback. These stats floored me when I saw them on Monday. These stats further amplify how well Heineke has played, and these stats make the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, the Tay-Tay haters, the taters, uh, look even more foolish. And I want to begin talking about this Sunday's game. Big challenge for the Washington football team at the Buffalo Bills. I will explore three intriguing storylines for this game. Also on the show, controversy in a wild game for the Nationals on Monday night. The Trey Turner runner interference rule back to doing the Nats dirty again, even with Trey Turner no longer on the Nats. Uh, Josh Bell was the culprit this time. You're going to hear a furious Davey Martinez from late night on Monday night. And there was a lot more that went on in what ended up being an 8-7, 10-inning loss at the Miami Marlins. We had a much cleaner game for the Orioles on Monday night, a 2-0 win at the Philadelphia Phillies. John Means was really good. I'll discuss that late in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Robert Delaney on FedEx Field for Washington's win over the Giants this past Thursday night. Writes Robert, so glad they appeased the people who wanted the name change and now the real fans won't buy tickets. Quick other item, hope you're watching Malik Willis. Uh, Yeah, my man Robert is a big Liberty fan. Malik Willis is the Liberty quarterback, and he has been killing it so far this season. Malik Willis, in fact, is number one in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR right now. He has been phenomenal so far this season. Uh, When it comes to the attendance for this past Thursday night, so paid attendance at FedEx Field was 50,000 118. The game was far from a sellout. A capacity at FedEx, for those who don't know, is 82,000. There clearly were a lot of Giants fans at FedEx on Thursday night. That was, though, a hot crowd, and the stadium got really loud as the game went on. FedEx Field immediately after the Taylor Heineke touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones was as loud as I've heard FedEx Field be 
in a while. Look, it's going to take a long time to get FedEx Field or wherever the Washington football team plays its home games to routinely being sold out. The goal for the team for now needs to be to give those fans who do attend games the best experiences possible. And those experiences being good starts with the team being good. And when it comes to the name change, while yes, that has angered plenty of people, Washington was having major attendance problems long before the name change. So while the name change may not have helped, I don't think that things would be significantly different if the team was still the Redskins. Email from Kim on Washington's quarterback situation. Writes Kim, I think it's interesting that the WFT waves Steven Montez, and then when Fitz goes down, we pick up a rando. The odds of Heineke staying healthy are slim, just the facts. That leaves Kyle Allen, and the QB3 is now QB2. You'd think that someone who is in the system like Montez would be valuable. I don't earn the big coaching bucks, but it seems irrational to me. Yeah, so Washington released Steven Montez in the cut down to 53 on August 31st. He then was signed by the Detroit Lions, their practice squad. Uh, it may well be that he was offered a spot on Washington's practice squad, but declined because, yeah, you would think that Washington would rather have Montez on the practice squad than Kyle Shermer, who the team just signed uh, now two Mondays ago, September 13th. Well, hopefully we are done with Washington quarterbacks getting injured this season. Hopefully Washington never has to go to Kyle Shermer, and hopefully things are going great in your life. We always hope that things are going great in your life, but we know that it's not always the case that things are going great in your life. Bad things happen, and I want to tell you about a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged. Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in D.C., Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through. Big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the DC trial lawyers. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-851-9899. That's 202-851-9899. Nine nine. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you say, hey, I heard about you guys on the Al Galdi podcast. Here's what I got going on. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-851-9899. You're not sure? You have questions? Call Paulson and Nace and see what Paulson and Nace has to say. That phone number again, 202 851 Nine nine. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest, Washington football team analyst Mark Bullock, one of the best guys out there when it comes to doing film breakdowns 
of the Washington football team. You can see and read Mark's work on Substack, markbullock.substack.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at NFL. He is based in England, although for this show, he's coming to us from Sweden. So this is an international man, uh, to be sure, and he knows his stuff. Mark, it's great to have you on again, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, how are you? Doing well. Appreciate you coming out very much. So I first had you on the podcast uh, back in March to preview free agency for Washington. A lot has happened uh, since then. Uh, you have studied Washington's first two games. Let's start with something simple. Who are the Washington players who have impressed you the most through two games? Like you just had to bullet point a handful of guys. Who are those guys? Yeah, I think um, on the defensive side, Jonathan Allen has been a, a clear standout. Um, obviously, he has the the three sacks, and um, you know that's that's more than what he had last year in total. But um, last year, he was still a very good player, and he, he got his big contract. He earned that, um, and, and has so far been the, probably their best player on defense. So um, he's been the standout on defense for me. Um, I, I think Cameron Curl at safety has also been. Um, very good, uh, and it's a little bit puzzling why he hasn't played more snaps, and that's not to say he hasn't played a lot of snaps, um, but he's always been that third safety in the rotation, um, and, and to me, he probably should be the priority. Um, uh, offensively, I, I think we've seen some pretty good stuff from Taylor Heideke. Um, obviously, Terry McLaurin had a big game um, against the Giants, um, and uh, I think his presence really impacted what the Chargers did defensively um, because they, they played a lot of things to try to take him away. So M- McLaurin um, has had a pretty big impact. Um, and then I've also been impressed with center Chase Rudier. Um I think he's done a really good job with the offensive line, uh, especially in the run game, um, not only with his blocks and, and making his blocks, but also um, the center's always in charge of all the targeting and, and who goes to which player and who makes which block. Um, and they've been pretty good up front in that regard. So um, uh, he's been impressive as well. So you mentioned Taylor Heineke. Uh, you and your Substack did a great breakdown of Heineke's performance in the win over the Giants last Thursday night. Was his performance as good as uh, the excitement from the game would suggest? <laughs> uh, it, it had moments of being as good as that excitement. Um, I, I think... The the late fourth quarter drive where he suddenly sparks into life and they had that two play seventy five yard drive um, that was outstanding um, and the the drive to set them up for the field in field goal position for the, for the game winner that that was solid as well um, I, I thought he had some issues with accuracy and ball placement um, throughout the game um, and I think everyone could see that like there there was a lot of throws that were high there was a lot of throws that were behind receivers. Um, and guys like Terry McLaurin bailed him out a few times on those um, and um, having to make adjustments to, to make the catches. Um, but, you know, receivers are paid money to, to do that too. Um, so it, it, he did complete the passes, um, but ideally you'd want them to be a little bit more out in front where they lead the receiver onto them. Um, and then that can be down to a few things, like the high throws can be he's not, stepping into his throws properly he's not transferring his weight properly um and that comes with just playing more um and and the the ball placement can be just from you know he's been practicing mostly with the second team um and suddenly he's been thrown into the first team with on a short week uh, with very little reps to practice with those guys so that can throw off the timing issues as well 
So the biggest obstacle for Heineke being a starting quarterback in the NFL would probably just be his durability, right? He's had a really hard time staying healthy. But in terms of his actual play, what to you is the biggest worry with Heineke? Uh, I think he's probably a little bit too risky. Um, and, and if he has the ball placement issues that he had um, on Thursday, uh, then that's going to lead to interceptions um, because he can try to – He, you like a quarterback to be confident and trying to fit the ball into tight windows and push the ball down the field. Uh, that's not a bad trait in and of itself. But if you don't have the – arm strength to really drive the ball into those tight windows and the accuracy to place it where only the receiver can get it. And that's not to say Heineke has a bad arm or is inaccurate, um, but he we saw he had issues with ball placement and he doesn't have the, the most amazing arm. It's not a Aaron Rodgers or Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes kind of arm. So um, he's not really driving that ball in there uh, with a huge amount of velocity. So the... Um, the issue with taking those aggressive shots is if you don't put the ball in the right spot, then it's going to lead to interceptions. And I think we'll probably see that at some point this season. Um, but you still want him to have an aggressive mindset, but it can, you know, it can work against him as well. The sample size obviously is so small, but just given what you've observed, do you think that Taylor Heineke can be a viable starting quarterback in the NFL? Uh, I, I don't know about, he's not necessarily someone I think is going to be their guy for the next 10 years. Um, he's not someone that would, I, I think is, you know, you just drafted a first round pick and, and you're battling through the, the roughs that come with that. And, and you, you know, long-term he's going to pan out. Um, I think he's a guy that could be serviceable. Um, I, and I think in the long term he's probably a, a really nice backup quarterback at, at best. Um, and, and someone that could come in, spot start for you um and and do a decent job especially in this offense knowing this system as, as much as he does but um I, I think the the durability as you mentioned like this was the first game that he's not that he's managed to finish in the nfl without getting injured so um I, that's a huge part of it um and i think once teams start to get a larger sample size on him and see and throw some different looks at him and see, hey, he doesn't react well to this kind of blitz or he doesn't react well to this kind of coverage, um, we'll, we'll get to see a more true look at exactly what he is as an NFL quarterback. Talking with Washington football team analyst Mark Bullock, one of the best guys when it comes to doing film breakdowns of the Washington football team. You can see and read his work on Substack, markbullock.substack.com. So Terry McLaurin, uh, he and the loss to the Chargers in week one targeted just four times. He and the win over the Giants in week two targeted it 14 times. Were there schematic reasons for the discrepancy in targets or did McLaurin get so many more targets in week two because of Washington just having the ball more than Washington had the ball in week one and perhaps Washington making more of an effort to target McLaurin in week two? Yeah, it was perhaps a little bit of both. Um, in that first game against the Chargers, they, they definitely, the Chargers played it um, very defensively against McLaurin. They, 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 they played a lot of two deep safeties and they rotated coverage to McLaurin. And, and basically from the first play of the game, they said, we're bracketing McLaurin with two defenders. You're not going to beat us by throwing to McLaurin. Um, and Washington, to their credit, they I, I think they had a decent game plan, and obviously it didn't pan out, um, but I, I think when 
the Chargers set out to play two deep defenders pretty much the entire game. They knew that the Washington knew that the Chargers would be light in the box, and they ran the ball well, and and they had basically five yards of carry. So um, it, it's not that they didn't plan well, um, and, and they schemed up some shots um, to other players by using McLaurin as a, as a decoy, and we saw that on the deep ball to Tiami Brown that got the pass interference. Um, that was a shot where Terry McLaurin at one stage had three defenders on him, and that left Brown one on one. So. Um, they they did. It's not like Washington didn't know that's what the Chargers were doing, and, and they had plans to attack that. Um, so the Chargers were definitely trying to take away McLaurin, whereas the Giants they did not set out to take away McLaurin in anywhere near the same fashion, and that obviously opens up a hell of a lot more to um, McLaurin, and, and and perhaps there was a little bit of compensating for the lack of targets in that first game by saying, well, they're not doubling McLaurin every play. Let's go to him a lot more often. So you and your substack also have done a lot of work with the Washington defense. Uh, this obviously has been a big topic. Just generally speaking, what things have struck you as the biggest reasons for the disappointing performances from Washington's defense so far? Um, so obviously the third downs were a huge issue against the Chargers, um, and, and they felt like they were against the Giants. Um, although when you go back and look at the numbers, uh, they, they only gave up four of 12 officially. Um, now that's, that's a little bit misleading because they also had two killer penalties from um, Collins and then Kendall Fuller on, on third downs, which effectively gave them conversions that didn't count as official conversions. So they effectively gave up six first, uh, third down conversions. But obviously the third downs has to improve. Um, and against the Giants... Uh, I think they had some busts where they were trying to do different things on different sides of the field and it didn't quite mesh. Um, they, they were playing a lot of combination coverages. Um, so they were playing some cover six at times where um, on one half of the field, it's quarters coverage or cover four. On the other half of the field, it's um, cover two. Um, and when the receivers cross the middle of the field, that can make things a little bit messy with how things get passed off. Um, and, I think Washington had one or two busts um, with regards to that. Um, and then uh, also there was the, the issues with the with the run game and, and obviously Daniel Jones with the zone read or the read option uh, really, really hit them. And um, they they didn't do a good job of defending that at all. They, they really struggled. Um, and the Giants, for me, the Giants should have run that every play until Washington confi- uh, confirmed that they could stop it. Um, that they did make some adjustments to that in the second half and, and they were a little more, more aggressive attacking the mesh point. Um, but they, it, it still wasn't convincing to me, but the Giants went away from it. So that's the what. What about the why? Like, why are pass catchers running so wide open? Do you think the defense is too complicated? You know, Ron has talked about guys not being where they're supposed to be and guys not being disciplined enough and guys perhaps freelancing. It it strikes me as troubling that these things are happening. I mean, there are plenty of veterans on this defense. What do you think is behind what we're seeing defensively? Yeah, it's, um, it's a combination of bad play all around, really. Um, we, we've seen that, that, that pass rush up front's not getting enough pressure, um, for as good as it can be, uh, or as talented as it is. Um, and, and that comes 
back to the coverage not holding up as long as it should and letting those guys get home. So it plays off of each other. Um, I, I think the, the coverage issues come from uh, maybe trying to do too much. Um, they, they were very simple last year with what they, they tried to do. It was usually cover three or quarters, um, and that was basically it for the most part. Um, whereas this year they're, they're trying to expand because they've, they've got some better players and um, they, they've got more depth in the secondary. Um, as I said, they've been trying to play combination coverages, like um, cover six. Um, they've been playing some match quarters. Um, and, and those kind of coverages, they work really well when they're communicated properly um, and, and players are passed off and, and picked up by the next guy. Um, and I think what we're seeing, certainly what I saw against the Giants, were that they weren't communicating and passing off routes correctly. Um, and and that can come from you know new guys playing in different spots and, and Kendall Fuller's moving back into the slot and they've got a rookie in Benjamin St. Juice playing outside and uh, a new safety in Bobby McCain and um, you know that they've got uh, William Jackson obviously at corner that they've got a lot of new faces there so it takes a little bit of time for those complicated coverages and the communication required to execute those coverages to to come together. We're talking with Washington football team analyst Mark Bullock. He is excellent when it comes to doing film breakdowns of the Washington football team. You can see and read his work on Substack, markbullock.substack.com. I want to get your takes on a few individual players. Uh, Chase Young. How has Chase Young played so far? I don't think it's as bad as people are making out. Um, but obviously, he'd love to have more sacks and he'd love to have more pressures, and, and you'd want to see that from him. Um, he. He is still impacting games. He is still generating pressure. It's probably not as consistent as everyone would like to be. Um, but from both the Chargers and the Giants game, you see he's getting a lot of extra attention. Um, he's quite regularly getting chipped by tight ends or running backs. Um, and offensive lines are quite often sliding his way to, to give the tackle as much help as possible against him. So he's still having a significant impact on game plans and offenses still clearly respect the threat that he brings. Um, but part of it is also, he's still a young player. He's still developing. He's still um, maybe perhaps a little bit overly reliant on his athletic ability and his, his pass rush plan. He does have good techniques and he does have a plan, um, but he doesn't always uh, come off of those plans very well and, and move from and react to different moves effectively. Um, and, and that just comes with experience. Um, so he, he's still got developing to do. Um, and, and I think we'll see as the season progresses that the more chances he gets to rush and, and, and not be playing quick game stuff where the defense isn't, it is actually covering defenders for longer than two or three seconds. We'll, we'll see him get home a little bit more. William Jackson the third. What are your impressions of him so far? Uh, he's another one that I think has been better than what people think. Um, he, a lot of people were concerned about the the deep ball that um, Darius Slayton dropped against the Giants, um, and that for me was partly his fault. Um, it was also partly just the Giants had a good call against the coverage that Washington had and as as much as fans hate to hear that like that does happen sometimes so sometimes the offense just has the right call against your coverage um so he was in a tough spot there um 
he obviously got beat for another touchdown and, and that was just a case of he, he missed a jam at the line of scrimmage. But he's also had some pretty nice reps as well, um, especially when he's been playing man coverage um, against the Chargers. They went in at him back-to-back with Keenan Allen and both times he pressed him at the line of scrimmage, pushed him outside, forced him wider to the sideline, closed the throwing window and both throws were incomplete. So um, he is having a, a, a decent start um it's obviously you don't want to give up that deep touchdown um in the giants game but um he he, i I think he's been better than people anticipated um and kind of a victim of the whole defense playing poorly and one more defensive player for you landon collins what do you think about him so far yeah he's um I was more impressed with him in preseason than I have been in the regular season so far. Um, he, when he came back in the preseason, I was shocked that a he was back on the field, given how short that recovery from that injury was, and, and b how light and fast he looked. He, he looked obviously that they talked about him being back to his college weight rather than his NFL weight, um, and, and he moved a lot quicker and, and seamlessly, um, and, and was playing deep a lot more often than he had in the past, and. and I was encouraged by that, and to a degree, he's been fine. But there have been issues, um, obviously, that there was the read option play against the Giants, where he was the end man on the line of scrimmage that was left unblocked, and people will kill him for that. But it, it's a tough spot for him to be in because they weren't really playing for the read option. He was he was the only guy there. They didn't have a linebacker scraping over the top as you typically would. So he was in a lose-lose situation. Either he crashes down on the run and Jones runs by him like he did, or he holds his position and the running back can, has a free lane right up the middle. So he was in a lose-lose situation either way. So um, I, I don't think Washington have necessarily done their best job keeping Collins in his best spots uh, and giving him the best opportunity, but he's also had some issues. And, and like I said earlier, he had the the penalty on a third down play where he tried to jam a tight end at the line of scrimmage, completely missed and ended up holding him and, and gave up the third down. Um, so he hasn't been amazing, but I, I don't think he's been terrible by any stretch. Exit question. So we saw Washington have a lot of trouble with Daniel Jones on Thursday night. Uh, this coming Sunday, right, probably a better version of Daniel Jones and Josh Allen, a guy who can throw really well, run really well. Can Washington handle Josh Allen at the Buffalo Bills this Sunday afternoon? <laughs> well, uh, I, I would say the first thing I'm doing if I'm the Bills offensive coordinator is installing some read options <laughs> yeah. and, and seeing if, if Washington can really defend that because until Washington proves they can stop it and I as I said, they made some adjustments in the second half, I, I, but I wasn't convinced that that would definitely stop it. Um, until they can prove that, I, I'd be running that all day long. But um, yeah, I think Josh Allen will certainly um, give them some issues and he's got the arm to, to make the throws. And, and I don't think he'd miss the, the deep ball to Slayton um, that, that Jones slightly overthrew. Um, and obviously, their weapons outside are, are pretty pretty good as well and, and Stefan Diggs and, and what have you uh, will be tough for Washington to cover um, I, I do think that the pass rush could get home a little bit more um, I, I think we saw in the first game against the Steelers that the that the um, the Bills had some issues up front with protection um, and Jonathan Allen in particular could get home against the left guard um, but yeah Josh Allen will certainly be a, a very very tough test for them Excellent insight. Check out his work on Substack, markbullock.substack.com.
Mortgagesmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmarketingmar
turnover-worthy plays are what they sound like, throws by quarterbacks that are worthy of interceptions but don't necessarily result in interceptions, and fumbles by quarterbacks that are true fumbles as opposed to, say, fumbles charged to quarterbacks that are the results of botched handoffs that are the faults of running backs. You see, you have to be careful with quarterback fumbles because quarterbacks get charged with fumbles on plays on which the fumbles weren't necessarily the quarterback's fault. So with all of that established, how about this? There now are 45 NFL quarterbacks who have each had at least 100 dropbacks since the start of the 2020 season. And we're talking here regular season and postseason. Taylor Heineke, among those 45 quarterbacks in that span, is number one in both big-time throw rate and turnover-worthy play rate. He has a big-time throw rate of 8.1%. He has a turnover-worthy play rate of 0.7%. Yeah. Among the 45 NFL quarterbacks who have each had at least 100 dropbacks since the start of the 2020 season, regular season and postseason, the quarterback who is number one in both big-time throw rate and turnover-worthy play rate isn't Patrick Mahomes, isn't Tom Brady, isn't Aaron Rodgers, isn't Lamar Jackson. No. That guy is Taylor Heineke. As Chase Young sang while he was mic'd up last season. Let's get it there, Heineke. Heineke. Exactly, Chase. Now, I know these are just stats, and I know the sample size with Taylor Heineke remains small. But how about that? I mean, seriously, how about that Taylor Heineke is number one among the 45 NFL quarterbacks who have each had at least 100 dropbacks since the start of the 2020 season, regular season and postseason, and pro football focuses big-time throw rate and turnover-worthy play rate. And to be number one in both of those things is remarkable for any quarterback Because on the one hand, if you're making a bunch of big-time throws, you're throwing downfield, you are, in theory, exposing yourself to turnover-worthy plays, and yet to have the high big-time throw rate while also having the low turnover-worthy play rate, that's phenomenal, and that's precisely what Taylor Heineke has done. And specific to the turnover-worthy play rate, that spits right in the face of this narrative from some fans and from a bunch of people in the media, the media mob, uh, that the guy makes all of these dangerous passes and takes way too many risks and is a four-interception game waiting to happen. The guy has the lowest turnover-worthy play rate of any quarterback with at least 100 dropbacks since the start of last season, regular season, and postseason. The lowest. Not like kind of low, sort of low. No, the lowest. The lowest of the lows. I am sure that the Taylor Heineke deniers the Taylor Heineke haters, the taters, as I call them, will continue to come up with reasons to knock the guy and not believe in the guy. I am sure that the taters will continue to move the goalposts. You've noticed that, right? That the goalposts for Taylor Heineke keep moving. We've gone from Heineke has no chance of playing well in the wild card game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field last postseason to Heineke has no chance of being Washington's starting quarterback 
for the 2021 season to now Heineke has no chance of being Washington's long-term starting quarterback. Pretty soon, the only thing that the Taters will have left to say is, yeah, but he won't be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Let's get it there, Heineke. Heineke. Yes, Chase, Heineke. Uh, As I keep saying, I don't know what Taylor Heineke is going to end up being. I am not certain of what Taylor Heineke is going to end up being. Unlike the Taters, being so certain of what this guy can't be, all I have said is that I want to see more. That's it, because I don't know. I'm intrigued, and I want to see more. Well, we saw more last Thursday night, and the more was glorious. And the numbers back up that he was glorious. And while it could be that he's about to come crashing back down to earth, it could also be that he isn't. The only thing that's for sure right now with Taylor Heineke is that nothing's for sure. Big test for Heineke this Sunday afternoon at the Buffalo Bills in what is a game with multiple intriguing storylines. I'll explore three of those storylines after this. Washington football team season is in full swing, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young, Sweat, and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with McLaurin and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Pack or at Carr and the Raiders or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash Galdi right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K.com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code Galdi. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so as the Washington football team on Tuesday is beginning the team's practice week for this Sunday afternoon's game at the Buffalo Bills, I wanted to note a few things with this game. First of all, this game is an opportunity for Washington to do something that Washington has rarely done over the last decade plus. Begin a season 2-1 or better. Do you know that Washington has started a season 2-1 or better? just three times over the last 12 seasons. Yeah, that's it. Washington has started a season two and one or better just three times over the last 12 seasons. I mean, it's not like two and one is some white hot start to a season, and yet a start that good or better has happened just three times over the last 12 seasons. Talking about 2009 through 2020. Washington started 2-1 and one in each of these three seasons, 2011, 2017, and 2018. Each of the other nine seasons over the previous 12 seasons has seen Washington start 1-2 and two or 0-3. Oh Forget about 3-0. and oh. uh, Washington has not started a season 3-0 and oh since 2005. One of the more frustrating things about being a fan of the team currently known as the Washington football team for years now has been the constant slow starts to seasons. Washington almost never begins a season fast. Washington is almost always in an early hole in a season. I talked after the 2016 loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one, how that loss continued Washington's struggles in week one games. Washington now is just two and six over its last eight week one games. Uh, The two wins, 24-6 at the Arizona Cardinals in week one of the 2018 season and 27-17 over the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field in week one of the 2020 season. But it's not just that Washington consistently loses week one games. It's that Washington is consistently one and two or worse after three games. Now, Obviously, one and two is in some insurmountable hole. And as we know, Washington's thing is to rally to make the postseason. Each of Washington's last five playoff seasons has been a season in which the team rallied from a hole earlier in the season. 2005, Washington went from five and six to 10 and six. 2007, Washington went from five and seven to nine and seven. 2012, Washington went from three and six to 10 and six. 2015, Washington went from five and seven to nine and seven. 2020, Washington went from one and five to seven and nine. All five of those seasons were playoff seasons. But 
is it not maddening that our team, like never, gets off to a great start? And not that 2-1 and one would be some great start, but it would be nice, wouldn't it? So this game at the Bills on Sunday afternoon is a chance for Washington to do something that the team rarely has done for years now. Now, as you may have seen, Washington is a big underdog for a Sunday afternoon at the Bills. Uh, Washington, for Caesar Sportsbook, as of early Tuesday morning, was a nine-point underdog, second biggest dog in NFL Week 3. And so here's something else. Washington winning at the Bills on Sunday afternoon would mark Washington's biggest outright win as an underdog since, believe it or not, Ron Rivera's final game as Carolina Panthers head coach. As you likely know, Ron's final game as Panthers head coach was a Washington win at Carolina, 29-21 in week 13 of the 2019 season. For pro football reference, Washington was a 10 and a half point underdog for that game. That surprised me when I looked that up. I did not remember Washington being that big of an underdog for that game. I mean, that was not a great Panthers team that season, and yet Washington was a 10 and a half point underdog for that game. Uh, per pro football reference, Washington's biggest outright win as an underdog last season was the 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in Week 13. Washington was a six-and-a-half-point underdog for that game. Now, we'll see what happens with the line for Washington at Buffalo as the week progresses. Maybe the line comes down. But for now, a Washington win at the Bills on Sunday afternoon would be a big deal from a gambling perspective. And then one more storyline for Washington at Buffalo. And not that one game is the determinant for something like this, but it's interesting to note that when it comes to the peak of the Carolina Panthers during Ron Rivera's time as their head coach, Washington has Ron and, of course, Marty Herney. But the Bills have Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. And there is a belief that the Bills have the better of the brain trust. The Bills in January 2017 hired Sean McDermott as head coach off him having spent the previous six seasons, 2011 through 2016, as Carolina Panthers defensive coordinator. The Bills in May 2017 hired Brandon Bean as general manager. He had an incredible rise with the Panthers from 1998 to 2017. Bean joined the Panthers in their communications department in 1998 and rose all the way to assistant general manager in June 2015. The Bills went 17 consecutive seasons without a playoff appearance, but now have made the playoffs three times over the last four seasons with McDermott as head coach and Bean as GM. The Bills did not make the playoffs from the 2000 season through the 2016 season, but now have made the playoffs in three of the last four seasons, 2017, 2019, and 2020. McDermott and Bean have done an excellent job with the Bills. And that's not to say that Ron and Marty can't do an excellent job with Washington, but there's still a lot that we need to see with Ron and Marty with Washington. We've seen enough from McDermott and Bean with the Bills to know that those guys are getting the job done. And know this too, a knock on Ron is that his Panthers defenses were not the same after McDermott left after his six seasons as Panthers defensive coordinator. McDermott was Ron's defensive coordinator for the Panthers from 2011 through 2016, 
before becoming Bill's head coach. Now, in fairness to Ron, his Panthers for the 2017 regular season, so that first regular season after McDermott left to become Bill's head coach, were number seven in the NFL in total defense for football outsiders, DVOA metrics. So it's not like Ron's Panthers defenses in the post-McDermott era were totally inept, but overall, Ron's Panthers defenses in the post-McDermott era were not as good as Ron's Panthers defenses during the McDermott era. And just like people said of Jake Rudin that his Washington offenses were not the same after Sean McVay left, people have said of Ron Rivera that his Panthers defenses were not the same after Sean McDermott left. This is a big game on Sunday afternoon, Washington at Buffalo. It's a big game for plenty of reasons, and there's a lot to be thinking about with this game. Well, we on Monday night had game one of a three-game series between two of the worst teams in the National League, the two worst teams in the National League East. The baseball was wild, the baseball was sloppy, and the baseball resulted in controversy. Yes, controversy between two teams that, as of this Tuesday, are a combined 50 games below 500. Make no mistake, these were two loser teams on display on Monday night. The Nationals lost at the Miami Marlins 8-7 in 10 innings on Monday night. Nats now are 61-89 and on the season, but the headline item from this game ends up being an old Nationals nemesis. Yes, an old Nats nemesis reared its ugly head. That nemesis, the runner interference rule, aka the Trey Turner rule, although now we perhaps have to call this the Trey Turner slash Josh Bell rule. So here's what happened. Josh Bell in the top of the 10th with one out, the bases loaded, and the game tied at seven, grounded into a 3-2-3 double play for the final two outs. But what happened was Bell was called out for running out of the baseline. Uh, Bell in running took the glove off of the Marlins first baseman, Lewin Diaz, and Bell took the baseball off his back as the ball was being thrown from Marlins catcher Nick Fortes to Marlins first baseman, Lewin Diaz. The ball hit Bell on the back. Bell took off the glove of Diaz, but Bell was ruled out. Now, Bell did run outside of the baseline. He did run onto the infield grass during part of his run to first base. That's a no-no. So you could argue that the rule was properly applied. But here's the thing about this rule. It is often misconstrued. The rule isn't that the runner is out if he runs inside the first baseline. The rule is that the runner is out if he runs inside the first baseline and in doing so interferes with the fielder taking the throw at first base. And it is debatable whether Josh Bell did that because the throw from the Marlins catcher Nick Fortes was not good. The problem with this rule is that it inevitably rewards a player for a bad throw to first base. And that's what ended up happening on Monday night. Davey Martinez was irate, uh, even though Davey couldn't come out from the dugout to argue because of the recent procedure on his leg. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman, who was on deck and who like never argues anything, at least not verbally, at least not obviously, he was furious. I mean, Zimmerman was going off so much so that he flirted with being tossed from the game. But of course, for the Nationals, this is a very familiar situation. What happened with Josh Bell on Monday night marked the third time in two years 
that the Nats were plagued by this rule. Each of the first two times involved Trey Turner. The first time came on October 29th, 2019. The Nationals 7-2 win at the Houston Astros in World Series Game 6. Trey Turner in that game called out for running inside the first baseline in the top of the seventh inning. Jan Gomes is on first. No outs. Nats were nursing a 3-2 lead. Trey hit a weak first pitch grounder off the ex-Nat Brad Peacock toward the third base side in front of the mound. Peacock fielded the ball, fired a throw to first baseman Yuli Gurriel. The ball and Turner collided with Gurriel's glove, resulting in the ball going down the right field line into foul territory and Gomes advancing to third and Turner advancing to second. But the home plate umpire, Sam Holbrook, soon called Turner out for interference, which also meant that Gomes had to return to first. Davey came out of the dugout to dispute the call, but because the decision was considered a judgment call, the play was not reviewable. Then, earlier this season, this whole thing popped up again. A 4-3 Nationals win at the Chicago Cubs this past May 19th. Turner was called out for running inside the first baseline and attempting to get to first base on a wild pitch on a swing and miss strike three to begin the top of the seventh. Turner was called out despite literally running straight down the first baseline and then the throw going behind him. Davey came out to argue, was immediately ejected for walking onto the field of play. He then, though, got his money's worth. You may remember this. Davey ended up ripping first base out of the ground, although it took a few seconds. It was a little awkward for a while as as Davey struggled to rip first base out of the ground. Uh, And then he spiked first base and kicked first base. It was a great tantrum by Davey Martinez. Well, Davey could not throw a tantrum on Monday night because of the recent procedure on his leg, but Davey could sound off. This was Davey Martinez late night on Monday night during his post-game Zoom press conference. Davey was livid. Take a listen, and you will, during this, hear a follow-up question from Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. You know what that, play, that play to me, I'm going to say, this, it's a cluster, right? It's a, ju- it's a judgment. They say it's a judgment. He ran inside. By the time he touched, when he touched the base, the ball hit him in the back. He was already on the base. It's a judgment at that point. I get it. If the ball hits him inside the line, that's, you know, and he's still running. Yeah, great. But come on, guys. Use your freaking common sense. One time. It's a brutal, it's a brutal, brutal freaking uh, play. It really is. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible. Do you feel that? Do you feel that because they maybe saw him going inside the line, that's why they? Am I asking no, exactly. Let the play. Hey, let the play finish. It's a judgment, right? right? Yeah. Don't don't start calling him. And the guy hasn't even thrown the ball. You know, the ball. He's running. The guy's got the ball in his hand, and he when he touches the base, he gets in the back, and they call him out. Yeah, I love it, man. I love when Davey gets fired up like that. Good for him. It's been a frustrating season. Good for him for letting off some of the steam uh, with what happened there on Monday night. Look, the umpires have got to do a better job of interpreting this rule. Again, the rule isn't that if you're inside the first baseline, you're automatically out. There needs to be more of an acceptance of, yeah, you may be doing something bad and running inside the first baseline, but that doesn't mean that you materially affected the outcome of the play. At the same time, I mean, Josh Bell needs to know better. He can't be running on the infield grass as he ended up doing and route to first base uh, on that play. But anyway, none of this should have really mattered, or at least none of this could have mattered if not for a terrible base running blunder by Luis Garcia. Luis Garcia was the Nats' automatic runner on second base to begin the top of the 10th with the game tied at seven. Lane Thomas led off the top of the 10th with an opposite field double to right field. But Garcia 
inexplicably didn't score from second base. Yeah, Garcia was on second base, but he only advanced one base on a double. He apparently thought that the ball might be caught. Okay, fine. Was waiting to tag up. Okay, I guess. But he could have made his way at least a third of the way toward third base, if not halfway toward third base, and then had enough time to retreat to second base. And, you know, maybe tagging up would have been a little harder in doing it that way, but he still should have had ample opportunity to tag up with where that baseball was going. Deep right field, really near the right field corner. But Luis Garcia ended up playing things so conservatively that he ended up advancing just one base on a two-base hit. I don't know that I've ever seen that before in watching baseball. That was awful, okay? I mean, that was amateur hour. And then you just knew that that would come back to haunt the Nets with them not scoring in that top of the 10th inning. And then, especially after the Josh Bell play, you just knew that the Nets would give up a run in the bottom of the 10th inning and lose the game. And sure enough, that's precisely what happened. Sam Clay allowed the unearned game-winning run in the bottom of the 10th on an intentional walk, a stolen base, and a walk-off wild pitch. Just amazing. Uh, Josh Bell did have a good game. I mean, I, you know, like it, it almost feels silly noting this, but uh, so he was an at starting left fielder. He went one for four with a double and two walks, and he made a nice catch. Uh, Bell in the Nats two run first through a one out six pitch walk, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Bell in the Nats three run fifth had an opposite field ground rule double to right field. Bell in the top of the eighth through a two out eight pitch walk. And Bell made a nice leaping backhanded catch against the outfield wall of a deep full count flyout by Lewis Brinson for the first out in the bottom of the second. The ball appeared as if it would have been a home run had Bell not made the catch. So dare I say a home run saving catch by Josh Bell, a home run robbing catch by Josh Bell. You know, Bell has played more and more in left field over these last few weeks. I mean, he's still a primary first baseman, but Davey Martinez has added some, wait for it, position flex to Josh Bell. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex in getting Josh Bell some reps in left field. And it's been kind of funny because for all of the time that Josh Bell has been spending in left field, the baseballs really had not been finding Josh Bell. He really had not had that many defensive opportunities as a left fielder. He gets a big one on Monday night and he comes through with a home run robbing catch. Uh, Luis Garcia, look, the base running boo-boo in the top of the 10th was really bad, but Luis did have two hits on Monday night. Garcia in the Nats three run fifth had a one out opposite field RBI double to left field for a 6-3 Nats lead. And Garcia in the Nats one run seventh had a one out infield single off a nice diving stop by the Marlins third baseman Eddie Alvarez. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Garcia base running blunder is what sticks with you. Also for the Nats in this 8-7-10 inning loss at the Marlins on Monday night, major defensive sloppiness from Alcides Escobar. Now, Escobar did go three for six with three singles, but he also committed two crucial defensive miscues. So with the singles, Escobar in the Nats two run first had a single as he gently poked a low and away pitch into left center field. Escobar in the top of the second had a two out single. Escobar in the top of the six had a leadoff single. Okay, great. But Escobar also had two big defensive miscues in three run innings for the Marlins. Escobar in the Marlins three-run third committed a two-out fielding error on a grounder by Brian De La Cruz as Escobar failed to field the grounder, and then the ball went up and like off the heel of his glove. And Escobar in the Marlins three-run seventh failed in an attempted pick of a two-out grounder 
up the middle by Lewis Brinson. The Marlins on the play tied the game at seven. Each Escobar miscue happened with him running to his left towards second base. Each Escobar miscue was perhaps the result of Escobar being a bit too casual. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know what he was thinking, but the two miscues were similar in nature, and the two miscues ended up looming large. Uh, Some more positives for the Nats in this game on Monday night. K-Bear Ruiz, three for five with two two two-run singles and another single. Uh, Hopefully, he's finally coming around offensively. I mean, we've talked about this with Ruiz, he does make a lot of contact. So you always kind of felt like, all right, it's just a matter of him making some better contact, him, you know, hitting some balls to where fielders are not. Uh, Ruiz on Monday night, two big hits especially. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats two-run first had a two-out bases loaded, two-run single for a 2 nothing Nats lead as he did a nice job of fighting off an inside pitch into shallow left field. Ruiz in the Nats three-run fifth had a win-out tie-breaking two-run single down the right field line for a 5-3 Nats lead as Ruiz again did a good job of turning on an inside pitch. And Ruiz in the top of the ninth had a leadoff single on a 1-2 pitch. His numbers so far at the major league level for the Nats are not good, but he has had some multi-hit games here lately and three for five with four RBI was Kbert Ruiz on Monday night. Lane Thomas had another big game on Monday night, two for five with a solo homer, a double, and a walk. Uh, Thomas in the Nats two-run first, drawing a leadoff seven-pitch walk despite having been down in the count of 1.12. Thomas in the top of the second, smashing a two-out full count solo homer to center field for a 3-0 Nats lead despite having been down in that count at 1.12. And that was some home run. The homer going a projected 413 feet per stat cast. We saw a lot of long home runs on Monday night. More on uh, some of the others in just a bit. And uh, Thomas in the top of the 10th smashed that leadoff opposite field double to right field. Although uh, Luis Garcia inexplicably did not score from second base as the automatic runner. Now, Thomas did commit a fielding error. Uh, The error ended up not being of much consequence, but the error happened uh, on a Lewis Brinson, went out full count single in the bottom of the sixes. Thomas had problems making an attempted backhanded stab uh, of the single off a bounce. This again was sloppy from the Nationals. Two bad teams were going at it on Monday night in front of literally dozens uh, at the Marlins home ballpark. Uh, But Lane Thomas does continue to hit 146 major league plate appearances now for Lane Thomas with the Nats, batting average of 302, on base percentage of 390, slugging percentage of 548. Also, Juan Soto on base a bunch more times. I mean, this is all this guy does right now is get on base multiple times. He got on base four times in this game on Monday night, one for three with a single and three walks. Soto in the top of the second, a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch. Soto in the Nats three-run fifth drew a leadoff five-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the sixth drew a four-pitch walk. Soto in the top of the 10th drew a one-out intentional walk. His major league leading on base percentage is up to 461. His major league leading walks total is up to 127. In terms of the Nats pitching, so Eric Fetty was the Nats starting pitcher, and Fetty was so-so at best, and calling the outing so-so may be being generous. So he allowed four runs, two earned, in five innings. Uh, He gave up just four hits, but they were three home runs and a single. He did have five strikeouts versus no walks. That's good. But he threw 96 pitches over the five innings. Fetty allowed three runs, one earned in the bottom of the third. He retired the first two batters he faced, but then came trouble. Uh, Fetty gave up a two-out solo homer by Jazz Chisholm Jr. on a bomb to the upper deck in right field. The homer went a projected 415 feet per stat cast. Felt like the home run went much further than just 415 feet, but that was some shot 
by Jazz Chisholm Jr. Then came the fielding error by Alcides Escobar. And then Fetty gave up another home run, gave up a two-out game-tying two-run homer by Jesus Sanchez to right center field to tie the game at three. That home run went a projected 421 feet per stat cast. Fetty led a run in the bottom of the fifth on a two-out full-count solo homer by Jazz Chisholm Jr. to center field to cut the Nats' lead to 6-4. So, you know, another outing in which, okay, this was okay, that was okay, but this still has been a very disappointing season ultimately for Eric Fetty. Uh, he now over 26 starts this season, has an ERA of 5-10. He does continue to get some strikeouts, so give him credit for that. His uh, strikeouts per nine innings is at a career best 8.86, but an ERA over five, over 26 starts. I mean, I'm sorry, like, uh, how, how do you say that that is anything but disappointing for a 2014 first round pick in Eric Fetty? Uh, then that's bullpen on Monday night. So you had Alberto Baldonado tossing a scoreless bottom of the six with two strikeouts. You had Patrick Murphy and Austin Voth combining to allow three runs in the bottom of the seventh. You had Andres Machado tossing a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. You had Sam Clay, like I said, giving it up in the bottom of the 10th, allowing the unearned game-winning run. But what to me stands out more than anything when it comes to the Nats bullpen on Monday night, Tanner Rainey. Tanner Rainey is on fire right now. Tanner Rainey tossed a perfect bottom of the ninth with three strikeouts to preserve a seven-all tie. This was Rainey's second appearance in as many days. Uh, Rainey, in the 3 nothing win over the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, tossed a perfect top of the seventh with three strikeouts. The Nats on Saturday recalled Rainey from AAA Rochester and optioned Wander Suero to Rochester. The Nats had optioned Rainey to Rochester all the way back on August 1st. He had been having a nightmare of a season. Rainey, at the time of being optioned to Rochester, 25 major league innings this season, ERA a 7.20, whip of 176, five home runs allowed. But Rainey ended up striking out the final nine batters he faced while pitching for AAA Rochester, and now he has struck out the first six batters he has faced in his latest go-round at the major league level. So Tanner Rainey now has struck out 15 consecutive batters, nine at the AAA level, six at the major league level. I know you can't just combine the two levels like that, but that's something else. 15 consecutive strikeouts for Tanner Rainey. Each of the last 15 batters he has faced, he has struck out. That's something else, man. I mean, that's pitching in a zone. You know, that's being locked in. And as bad as Tanner Rainey was prior to being optioned to AAA Rochester on August 1st, don't forget Tanner Rainey last season was really good. Tanner Rainey was one of the biggest bright spots on the Nationals pitching staff in the 2020 season. Rainey in the 2020 season, 20 and the third innings, ERA at 266, a strikeouts per nine innings of 14.2. He had 32 strikeouts in just 20 and the third innings last season. This season had not been going well. Maybe just maybe Tanner Rainey can be a guy who ends this season on a high note. But man, he has been electric over these last two outings here in his return to the major league level. Game two for the Nats at the Marlins, Tuesday night at 6.40. It'll be Rogers versus Rogers for the second time in a week. Uh, Josh Rogers versus Trevor Rogers. Well, believe it or not, we on Monday night had a shutout win for the Orioles. Yes, a shutout victory for the worst team in the majors. 2-0 the final. 
at the Philadelphia Phillies in game one of a three-game series, shades of the 1983 World Series. And so, Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe. It's always nice to hear that. Uh, This was the Orioles' first shutout win since July 18th. Owes now a Major League worst 48 and 102. Uh, Two things in this game. Number one, John Means was great. Uh, Means in this win on Monday night, six in two-thirds scoreless innings. He had six strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. He threw 65 strikes versus 40 balls on 105 pitches. And Means had a hit. Uh, He, in the top of the seventh, had a one-out double off the center field warning track on a one-two pitch. And that ended up being the only extra base hit in the game. Yeah, if you're an O's fan, you're not used to this. A 2 nothing game. I mean, so many of these Orioles games this season have been slugfest, or at the very least, games in which the opposing team has uh, put up a bunch of runs, but not on Monday night. Uh, the run prevention was certainly there. John Means was terrific, and this continues this like mini renaissance for John Means, who was excellent early in the season, then kind of tailed off, but Means now has been at least decent in each of five consecutive starts. Now, he's not back to his dominant self. He's not back to his American League Cy Young Award contender self, who we saw earlier in the season. But he has been better here over these last few weeks, and he was really good on Monday night. Means now, on the season, 24 starts, 138 and two-thirds innings, has an ERA of 325, has a whip of 0.99. I mean, he by far has been the Orioles' best starting pitcher this season. And while it's still hard to say, like, on a good team, is John Means an ace? I still would say probably not. But on a good team, I think he's a decent number two and a really good number three. And uh, he pitched really well on Monday night. So full credit to John Means. Also in this Orioles 2-0 win at the Phillies on Monday night, Austin Hayes strikes again. So Hayes was actually the Orioles' leadoff man on Monday night with both Cedric Mullins and Trey Mancini not starting. Uh, Hayes was the Orioles' starting left fielder. He had a single and a walk continuing his recent good hitting, but he also made a nice catch. Uh, Austin Hayes made a fully extended backhanded catch of an Andrew McCutcheon liner for the third out in the bottom of the fourth. Uh, Austin Hayes is a really good defensive corner outfielder. I've talked about that a bunch on the podcast. Hayes entered games on Monday tied for seventh in the majors among all qualified outfielders with plus 10 defensive runs saved, and we saw some of the great defense on display there. Game two for the O's at the Phillies Tuesday night at 7.05. All right, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, uh, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 150. Uh, We expect to have plenty from Ron Rivera on Tuesday to chew on as we will have the latest on the Washington football team and this Sunday afternoon's game at the Buffalo Bills. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Well, come on, guys. Use your freaking common sense one time. It's a brutal, it's a brutal, brutal freaking uh, play. It really is. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.